Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Hey, it's Phil. Before you're going to check out my Rants About Humanity episode, I also want to invite you to consider following me and subscribing on my podcast channels and my Rumble video player channel down below. You can find it in the description. With the increasing censorship and limitations of freedom of YouTube, I don't know how long I will be able to have my thought-provoking conversations on YouTube. So if you want to support me in my mission of freedom of speech, open debate, be sure to also check me out and follow me on those platforms. I'm all about open debate, no censorship, no filter. So no matter what happens, I will keep on having my important interactions about topics that don't get enough attention. Hope to see you on my other channels and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Jesse Brissendine. Jesse is a best-selling author and award-winning speaker. He's a world-renowned expert who works with individuals and organizations to move beyond their limitations unlock their greatness and build their Camelot. We're going to see if we can pull out that Excalibur today. Business leaders, Hollywood celebrities, entrepreneurs, medical professionals, and educators have utilized Jesse's services to break through limiting beliefs, uncover their unique purpose, build thriving businesses, and live fulfilling lives. Jesse is a big fan of buffets, professional wrestling, and finding the silver lining in any situation. Let's start with the important stuff. What do you like about professional wrestling? And is there something as unprofessional wrestling? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's quite fortuitous that I'm wearing my new wrestling shirt here for today's <laughs> recording. So it's, it's funny. When I was a kid, I remember my first, my first real superheroes. So my first real superheroes were watching the professional wrestlers, these guys with these huge muscles and whatnot. And growing up, we didn't really have TV. We got one channel that came in kind of fuzzy if you went out and moved the antenna around and whatnot. And when I was in high school, my dad got satellite and all of a sudden with satellite, we could get wrestling. And it was the only thing throughout my whole life that my father and my brother and I did together where my dad would come home early from work and we'd all sit there and watch uh, Monday night nitro is what it was because we'd watch world championship wrestling. And it was just, it was such a fun bonding time. And my dad has since passed away, but it's one of those things that when I watch it, it's weird because I still have those warm, fuzzy feelings with it. And now I have some other friends that we watch together and it's just, it's good. It's good silliness. It's good fun. You don't really have any skin in the game and caring which team wins or loses. You know, there's good guys and bad guys. There's a couple people that you love to hate. And there's a couple people you hate to love. It's just, it's entertaining. It's really just a fun, fun way to kind of get lost in the world. And people say it's fake. It's fake. Well, these guys are athletes. Mm -hmm. And you have some scripted storylines, kind of like going to Circus Olay or something like that, where these are doing some incredible aerial things. And it's a, it's a show put on, you know, I don't know where the whole fake thing comes from. It's, it's just fun. It's really good fun. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having fun. And in a way, it's also a bit of a segue towards like wrestling, right? Wrestling with your fears, wrestling with limiting beliefs, wrestling with in your case, where you would talk a bit more about your experiences with loss and grief and stuff, in a way, it's also like wrestling with it. But then, you know, I don't know, finding the lesson in the struggle, let's say, to persevere. Maybe you could give a little bit of a background about yeah, your interesting story about uh, what you faced in your life and, and, and how do you learn from those adversities? 
Yeah, I think wrestling can be a beautiful metaphor for life in, in so many ways. As I mentioned earlier, my dad passed away. And my dad's loss was very unexpected. So I had before, about six months before my dad died, one of my closest friends took his life. I found him when he was still alive, went through the whole thing with him. And I found myself in this really dark place because I had never gone through anything like that. And our education system doesn't really prepare us for things like that. You spend lots of time learning about quadratic equations and the symbolism at the end of the, for the green light and the great Gatsby, but nothing in there is actually, at least in my education, wasn't focused on like, what do you do when the world, your proverbial world seems like it's at an end? What Mm -hmm. do you do when it hurts so bad you can't breathe? What do you do when you have these images in your mind, you can't get them out of your head? And when Gabe passed away, I found myself really struggling in this dark place of trying to figure myself out. And I was, you know, going through the best adage and vice that I could find available at the time that grief has no timeline, that you could grieve the rest of your life. And all that was just so depressing and unacceptable to me feel because I did, I was feeling like hell. And the last thing I wanted to do is, is sign up for a lifetime of feeling like hell. There had to be a difference. And so I started to kind of explore this. And then when my dad passed away, my dad had been going through a two-year battle with cancer. And he had just gotten the clean bill of health literally two weeks before he passed, where the doctor calls him up, looks him in the eye, shakes his hand, says, congratulations, Mike, you're cancer-free. You have your whole life. You've earned more time. And my dad drops dead. And so after I gave him my dad in such close succession and, and being in such a dark place, I realized that it was really important for me to try to figure out how to find my smile, how to be happy again. If there was going to be no timeline with grief, meaning that grief wasn't going to hurry itself along, then I realized that I had to be proactive and focus on what I did want, which wasn't this dark cloud of grief to follow me around, but it was to find the sunshine and rainbows of life again, to find the happiness, to find the silver lining. So what I did after that was I I decided to do this thing that I called the one year 1000 challenge, where I challenged myself to do a thousand things I'd never done before in a calendar year. I had to do at least one new thing a day. And the whole intention was this was really about being really deliberate, really intentional about how you live your day. You know, most humans were a byproduct of our habits, right? We're 90 plus percent of what we do every day is habitual. How we get dressed, um, how we brush our teeth, how we eat, everything. We're not thinking about these things. Inevitably, what happens is it starts to create patterns, right? And so our emotional experiences become patterned. They become habitual. We, us feeling sad, us feeling angry, us feeling frustrated, us feeling afraid. It, it, most of it is habits. Very few of it is some sort of stimulus. And even if it is an external stimulus, most of it is, it's a familiar patterning, meaning we get a trigger and that pattern in our brain says, oh yeah, this is like this, we're supposed to feel this. And I knew that I needed to create some new patterns because I was starting to pattern my life, starting to form habits around feeling sad, depressed, grief-stricken, guilt-stricken. So that year was about just finding happiness, about creating, living with intention and building and creating happiness. And it was incredible, Phil. I ended up doing over a thousand things I'd never done before. Most of these things were things that cost little to no money. It wasn't a bucket list year where you take the year off work and you travel around. Most of it was stuff you had to do every day in the context of working. But it was really to show that you have, all of us have the capacity. We have the potential to live with intention. And what I found with that was that was really this, this incredible key to how we live and experience life is the intention. Because whether we like it or not, we are going into our days focusing on something. And we have thousands of things competing for our attention. Media, our Facebook timeline, our Instagram feed, advertisers, what's at the supermarket, our neighbors next door. 
And if we're not intentional about where we're going to put our focus, somebody is going to hijack it. And then in turn, in that, in that hijacking, we are going to respond emotionally accordingly. And the emotion that we're going to experience as our baseline is going to really make the foundation for how we experience and express life. Now, but I'm really curious about like, if you would have to choose between two motivations, what your, was your motivation mostly like, what would I love to do that makes me feel alive? Or would your motivation have been more, what would I love to have done before I die? It makes me feel alive. Great question. Makes me mm. feel alive. It, it was very much that my, what I came from. So after my father passed away about two and a half years after that, or so maybe three years, my best friend was killed in a car crash. And what became very clear with, when, with his passing is I was asking myself these questions, you know, how would, how would they want me to live? What would they want me to do? And it was very much about being in the present, like making this moment count, because I think the challenge is with, with racing against the clock, what do I want to do before I mm -hmm. die? Oftentimes, the answers that come up are the big stuff. I want to travel and go see the pyramids in Egypt. I want to watch the waterfall at, at Victoria. I want to skydive. Rush, right? The rush. Yeah, to get yeah. It's down. the yeah. big stuff. It's the big stuff. And, and those things are great, but they're unsustainable. Meaning, they're, it's an unsustainable. If you've ever walked outside where you live, And if you live in a town that has kind of a famous national landmark or something like that, you go out and the first time you see it, you're just, wow, you're in awe of it. The next time you see it, wow, you're in awe of it. The fifth time you see it, eh, you're still wow, still in awe, but maybe not quite as much. And over time, the impact dissipates. And so for a lot of people, that can be a real challenge because how do you, how do you meet that at scale? If you're basing your quality of life on these immense highs, How do, you, how do you recreate the feeling of skydiving every single day? So it's a challenging thing to do versus if you focus on really like, how do I want to live? There's a sustainable intention. It's about, for me, at least it's about finding bliss, about having most of my moments, as many as possible, be moments where I'm experiencing some, some form of happiness, joy, bliss, and even doing just doing the simple things. And one habit I do is when I wake up in the morning, I when I first take that conscious breath, Before I move, before I do anything, I just say to myself, wow, what a gift it is to be alive. And having that thought versus all the other shit I used to think when I had first wake up, and it's powerful because now I get out of bed and I have a smile on my face. Something that's sometimes paradoxical for people, and especially in these times where people can't seem to cope with death or loss and are in this comfort culture, at least that's my opinion, sometimes being confronted with loss and that makes you really fee face the meaningful questions in life. So for me also, when I think about, you know, like one day this is going to end one day, my mom and dad won't be anymore. One day I want to leave something behind. And I, I reflected about that yesterday. Like some questions are wrestled with, let's say, am I a good friend? Am I a good partner? Am I a good son? And those things And what would I love to have left behind or how would I love people to remember me? That's very, maybe confronting, but very powerful questions. Yeah. And then and you get into this whole space of we can even explore the definition of what is good. And mm -hmm. is it good for me or is it good compared to somebody else? Right. Of, often when we bring in those kinds of that kind of language, it's a language that when we're, we're asking, we usually are basing good versus in comparison to something else. So my, I am, am I as good a son as Phil is? Is Phil as good a partner as Jesse is? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not about me being equal to you or you being equal to me. It's about you being equal to you and me being equal to me. It's about you being you and me being me. And I think one of the challenges so many, many of us face, Phil, is that we've gotten, we've learned to compare. 
and it's almost like our whole culture is is fueled by comparison in many ways, right? It's it, whether it's social media, the number of likes we get, the number of downloads we get on a podcast, we don't celebrate the likes and the downloads. We compare it. Oh shit. I didn't get as many downloads as Phil did, or I didn't get as many downloads as the other episode. That was so stupid of me to have that guest on because they just weren't, they didn't have the same social cloud or whatever it is. Right. It's a really interesting dichotomy. I was, I was, I heard something, gosh, this was maybe six months ago. And they're talking about one of the biggest challenges the younger generation faces is they're growing up in a world where they're learning they are learning self-acceptance, self-love and self-worth based off of followers and likes mm-hmm. on social media. Yeah. So you and I, let's say you and I are 10 years old or 10 year old selves. You get a hundred likes consistently. I'm only getting 50. Well, now I'm not as good as you are. Yeah. Like the myth of narcissists who looked at the water to see himself. Now that myth is turned the other way towards the whole surroundings and they have to reflect the self-image, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we're always going to project what we, we're always going to internally project, you know, we're going to reflect what we project. Yeah. And this is the thing that I think is super exhausting to only have your self-image defined by what other people think about you, or if they like you, you have to perform, you have to pretend, you have to put on a symbolical mask and act all the time to, to stay interesting enough to pay attention to. But in the end, you should be your own best friend and own supporter. You should pay attention to yourself because whether you like yourself or not, you're stuck with you. Like this is yeah. your life. You can make something of it by focusing on the things under your control. And I see a lot by the appraisal of victimhood, the blaming, you know, the being triggered. They put all the power outside of themselves, which is very disempowering. Yeah, you know, it's it's something we've done to our great detriment, and especially in Western developed nations is we've arrived at a place where we've met all of our basic survival needs in spades, right? Food, water, shelter, the basic, the four Fs of survival, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and fucking. Mm. We have apps for all of those. Apps to get us food, apps to get us sex, apps to get us shelter, apps to get us a, a, an escape. And what in that ends up doing those, we still have that primitive brain that is looking for survival. It's evaluating things for survival, except we're not having to look at life and death for most of us on a day-to-day basis. And we're tribal creatures, you know, the nature of our survival is often dependent on our peers or tribes. And so mm-hmm. what we've created now in societies, we've created these dynamics where you're in or you're out of the group, depending on what labels you affix yourself, what you, you publicly espouse, you believe, or you don't believe. And that's a, that's a scary thing for a lot of us because we're risking, ostr- we're risking getting ostracized from groups constantly if our beliefs are not what the norm or what the advocated belief should be. And then that triggers into that survival brain, right? So now how can I focus on myself if I'm worried about Phil kicking me out of the clubhouse because I believe something different than he does? Yeah, they have like tribal systems or sometimes when you have corporations without leadership that they say like up until 30, I don't know, 40 people, et cetera, it works. But when it becomes bigger, it's like too hard to handle. But our brain is not adapted to it. Like being cast out of the tribe, not being liked, that could have been that during the entire survival of uh, human species. So a lot of times this essential, like I'm not being liked, I'm not gonna survive, I'm gonna be killed, instinct is triggered, but just something like, oh, I'm not getting enough comments, I'm not being liked, I'm getting criticism. Yeah, yeah. It, that was so stupid for me to, to, to post that. And we have a physiological reaction, right? We feel that our face getting flushed, we feel ourselves starting to sweat, we feel the tension move up and down our body. It's literally, an anxiety stress response, the same as we might get our heart starts to palpate and we start to race, the same as we might get when we we almost get rear-ended in traffic or 
we, we we're walking to the store and a car goes by and we nearly get avoided. We're having the same biological physiological response as we would if our life was literally in danger because we're now using survival in context of evaluating our self-worth and social media. And I think we're worshiping comfort and having this Faustian deal of more choices while it's very clear up until now that more choices will not make us more happy. Endless Netflix choices, endless virtual reality of endless experiences. It's being sold as like, oh, that's ultimate joy. No, it isn't. There's a lot of impact on the st stable things in people, their life. Like, okay, now I date a girl. Okay, endless choices. It's nice to pick one, but then I'll stick with one while that portal of attractive dates on your WhatsApp, Tinder, and all the other dating apps or on Facebook friends is still out there when you have like a, a down point in your relationship. Oh, let's scroll these X pictures. Let's start a chat with this person. I mean, they act like they can just pick and use their willpower wisely, but we're not as strong as the temptation of those things. Let's be real. Yeah, yeah, it's so spot on. I, if I, I don't know about you, but I actually can't stand all the choices on Netflix and whatnot. Now there's <laughs> more and more apps because I get on yeah. there and I go to watch something. It takes me 20 minutes to sit there and even decide what to watch because there's so much choice. I, I miss the good old days when you had to really be intentional about getting in the car, driving to the video store, then yeah. walk around and then make a choice because you knew that when you came home with that video, that was what you're going to commit your time to. You didn't have the option of if you didn't like it in five seconds, you could switch it off and turn on 10,000 other choices. And here also you had the fear of loss, right? In another way, fear of loss. Have I made the right choice? Yep. Should I have taken this? So it's not only the fact that it paralyzes us to make the right choice. It's also that when we make a choice, we're always wondering, have we made the best choice? Could I have made another decision? So in the future, when I see all these avatars living in a virtual world, endless choices. You could plug in those synapses on your brain and go skydiving in Australia. You could do deep sea diving in Indonesia. Endless choice. Anytime that you're hanging out and choosing something, 80% is thinking like, should I have done something else? Should I be somewhere else? Is this the place I want to be? How <laughs> anxiety provoking and a torture device is that to have endless choices just within the reach of your finger and the palm of your hand. But they sell it like it's like ultimate freedom, ultimate choice. Live the life that you want to live. We're going to get to the point, I think, in the next few years where we'll be able to create any sort of emotional experience we want through virtual reality. That'll be much more intense and much more sensory evoking than any sort of physical experience we can create in this kind of reality. And that's going to be a challenge, as you said, like we're so only seeking cover and we're, we're so averse to actually going through discomfort. How are people ever going to engage in this kind of reality more when it's so much easier in that reality, when you can be whoever and you can do whatever? This is the thing that I kept on predicting for years. In the future, just as you have a 3D printer, like attractive women, let's talk about women, you will be able to use their body online, plug in, have sex with them on any place that you want, in any position. You will order a session for 30 minutes. You put in some fetishes and some unpredictability and every day you can sleep with a beautiful woman and feel like it's actually real and then you ask yourself like why would i still be with a real human being it's so boring this real sex because i can do it at any place that i want i can buy these women for a time that i want i can do the kinky stuff with them that i like so why the hell would i just settle with a less updated app aka real human <laughs> yeah. Relationships are hard. I, I volunteered several years ago for a, a 
basically like a young person support organization. And it was really interesting. The people who were writing in about relationship problems, I'd say 25 to 30% of their relationships were relationships with people online who they'd never physically met in person. You know, their, their emotional experience is the same. It's the same as if you have a physical partner and the stuff you go through, you're expressing the frustration, discomfort, sadness, longing, all those types of things. And so you imagine now with virtual reality coming in exactly to your point, but we get to have all the good stuff and we can phase out all the hard stuff, the fights, the arguments, the disagreements. You know what they it is? Have- it's this need for control. And we think like, we don't, we, we don't want people to just uh, be very controlling, but we want the ultimate control. It's very difficult to handle the unpredictability of humans or those emotions, et cetera. So we think if we can just control the seduction, control everything in the relationship, we will be like happy. This is that I say a lot of times, like the danger is not for robots to become like humans. The danger is for humans to become like robots and treat each other like apps. Yeah, I can see in the future time. people like, what is this human? I'm trying to update them and change it, but they, they won't update. Like, what is it going on here? <laughs> or people will say like, let's meet in the real world because then I can, in a virtual world, because then I can update you according to my liking. Yeah, yeah. Or I can swipe left or right to, if you bore me <laughs> with no consequence. Yeah, you can have, I don't know what the movie was. It's the guy with the same mustache as me that, you know, he dates that operating system. Scarlett Johansson does like the voice of the character. Oh, and was that, that Lucy? I don't know. Lucy? No, no, it was not Lucy. But, and in the end, that operating system focuses her attention on oh. him. But she's she's dating like so many people at the same yeah. time, you know, and he feels like Transcendence or something? Johnny Depp, right? It was the one no, Johnny No, 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 it was he... that. I don't know what the guy was. Like people in the comments probably will be able to, to say who it was. But uh, yeah, very interesting concept of like just dating an operating system that adapts to your personality. And yeah, she's like perfect and she does whatever I want. But then that operating system gets bored and just hooks into other people and gets constant stimuli, you know? So he wants constant stimuli, but he wants her to be exclusive with him. But then that AI or operating system starts dating herself, you know, like one explore possibilities and then he feels like cheated by that operating system, you know? Yeah, and, and, and I think the technology is so much closer than we realize too. And it's already here in many ways too. I mean, we just pick up our phones. The average person looks at their phone two to 300 times a day. Two to 300 times a day. Most of us probably don't make eye contact with our partners a fraction of that time. But we'll make eye contact with our phones two to 300 times a day. Yeah, I had a friend. It's like an interesting symbolical analogy. You have the, the series Black Mirror. And in a way, that screen is a black mirror that sucks us in and keeps us occupied. But if this is the thing that makes us feel fulfilled, that's fine. But when people ask themselves, what are the meaningful, fulfilling, satisfying things in my life? Oftentimes, it's not like, that time I was scrolling in the metro in Japan, man, that half hour, most epic hour of my entire life, you know? It's like occupying yourself. It's being busy. It's like sometimes just being able to, I don't know, I think it was Pascal Blaise who said it. Most of the problems come from people not being able to sit quietly in a room. They want to occupy themselves, be busy, and that anxiousness has to be filled up. But oftentimes that are not the most fulfilling and meaningful things. And I mean, I'm guilty of it. You're probably also guilty of it. I'm not preaching it like I'm the guru or whatever. But sometimes you get these insights in the pause, in the silence, in reflecting, in getting away. We need these times that we get away from all our occupations, tendencies, and then have a fresh look at ourselves. But when we're constantly plugged in into these electronic tentacles, let's say, it's very hard to escape the temptations of those things. Man, I'm this... This week and next, I'm, I have two two keynotes I'm doing. 
and I'm prepping for. And the hardest thing I do probably on any given day is blocking out time in my calendar to just have it be creative time. And I know I have enough experience to where I know I have to sit still. I have to be quiet. I have to just kind of allow things to come. But the temptation to be doing this <laughs> is so great. And it literally feels like I'm having a withdrawal from something sometime, yeah. especially not being busy, not checking my email, not responding. I have to take the electronics, put them in the other room because, but then I can rationalize it because I have, you know, a notepad on the phone or a notepad on the iPad or whatever it is. And so you really do, you have to make that choice with it and then wrestle through the, oh, well, I could get it here. Oh, I really need to see what's going on here to just be able to be still and allow that creative process to come. I'm a dinosaur, as some young people call me, because I always convince myself when I go outside, I don't need my phone with me. And when I really need it, I take it. But else 90% of the time, I don't have my phone with me. I'm just horrible in navigation and GPS. So sometimes then I need it, but else, no, it distracts me. Takes me away from the present moment. And then I'm going to go walking with my dog. And half of the time I'm scrolling through stuff, you know, and you know, I should be in control of this technology. I should be using it instead of being used by it. But we are being used by this technology and I will pull this Excalibur out of this stone and I will slay those dragons in the rabbit hole because I know you're also aware of this, that this also has a purpose. This technology, when we take a look at the food industry, the technology industry, the media industry, the pharmaceutical industry, it also keeps us like enslaved, distracted. Because one thing that I like, and I, I listen to... Uh, a podcast episode of David, David Icke, whether you like him or not, one thing that we've seen the last years is the centralization of power in companies and institutions. You know, you want to order stuff, go to Amazon. You want to check out the media, these five corporations. You want to have your pharmaceutical things, go to this. So we see an increasingly accumulation of power, decision-making power in these big institutions. I think $3 trillion went from like, the middle class or whatever to these big corporations. So we also see these essential things in human perception, human behavior, increasingly being centralized in these couple of institutions or corporations who define a huge aspect of our life or transport or dating or consumption. How, how, how do you see the evolution, what's happened the last 15 or 20 years? Because I still, peop I, I still think that people don't realize like, these Ubers, these Amazons, these Facebooks, like all these evolutions the last 20 years, these are like gigantic. They're having so much effect on our daily life. But because yeah. this technology and this space is so fast, we never sit down to reflect like, whoa, 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 so many things have changed. Is it actually for the better that these things have changed? And should we, should we pause some things and rescue some things that we have lost? Humans were, were creatures of comfort. We like to be around people who are like us. We love to be right. And we really love to prove other people wrong. And when you think of that, those, all those institutions that you just mentioned basically operate in business models that do exactly that. Amazon creates comfort, massive comfort. You don't have to go to the store. You don't have to take your time to do that. Jeff Bezos's last letter he sent to the shareholders, he did a whole math formula where he broke down the, the, Amazon value they return to their prime members and about how much time they gave back to each member because they're not going to the store. It ended up being something like 70 plus hours mm -hmm. a year that people got back from their life and you know time they have with their families because they can order on Amazon. The media, why would we, we want to we be told what we like and what we know. 
we don't want to be told stuff that can, that challenges our beliefs or makes us uncomfortable. So we're going to tune in. And why would we go and want to investigate ourselves when all the information is just right there? In social media, boy, our, our feeds are populated by who we interact with and who we get fired up about, who's going to generate the most emotion because the more emotion we generate- But let's be real. The food industry, Monsanto, is making us sick. The pharmaceutical industry keeps us numbed out, dependent on these things. Oftentimes, these things actually make things worse. When you look at the death causes, like I think in the top three, but actually complications from, from medicine use. Social media is not bringing the truth. You know, it's polarization, gathering attention for their advertisers. When we take a look at all these institutions, okay, they can make more money, et cetera, in a capitalistic model, but that model is not really benefiting the future of humanity. On the contrary, they're really trying to keep us irresponsible, triggered, atomized, unhealthy, dependent, being a slave to the system while they extract our attention, our power, our resources to get more control. At least that's how, how I'm seeing it increasingly now, especially the last year? Yeah, I see it just a little bit differently. I see it more so that we are we are voluntarily enslaving ourselves to the system. They're setting up consumable modalities for us, and we're jumping on board to consume. We don't have to log into social media. Social media creates an environment that's very lucrative for us to log in, and then it becomes a choice. Do I hang out with Phil and have a conversation, or do I go and scroll on social media? Well, social media is easy. There's immediate feedback. There's all sorts of things. I don't know what kind of mood Phil is going to be in. It might be, I don't want to bother him. I don't want to be rude. All these types of things. So it makes it easy. And I think I think there's, it's kind of like we all have the keys and we're going and giving the keys away and social media, media, whatever it is, is waiting there with open arms and golden shackles saying, here, don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of you. We'll get you hooked up. And I think that's important to acknowledge because I think the most powerful thing humans possess is free will, free choice mm-hmm. in the sense of to whatever degree of what we're going to consume, what we're going to put in our bodies. It's just, we're giving that away to such an extent because we want to be accepted. We want to be part of the tribe. We want to be on the right side of the conversation, not the wrong side. We don't want to be labeled. God, we have so many labels in society now. And I feel like this last year, we really up their game with how many labels we have. And each label, what it does is it's just, it's a way to categorize us as less human and make people more more like them, less like us, or us more like them and less like them. And that's a a difficult thing. When we start start seeing the label versus a human, it's going to make it really, really difficult for us to relate to each other, for us to learn from one another, for us to grow together. Because... You know, if I if I'm an apple person and I'm allergic I'm allergic to oranges, and I start labeling you and you and you as an orange, what good are you to me? You you're just you're death in some ways. How how I see it is, I almost see like a couple of people with their hands and their cat on their lap, like I don't know the gold gold finger. I don't know like Spectre oh, and James Evil. Bond yeah. and Doctor Evil and stuff. You know, they have yeah. a whole board and there's like. In-group, out-group behavior, a button. Fear, there's a button. Like lack of belonging, a button. You know, anxiety, a button. Fear of death, a button. It's like just press some buttons because they know that will trigger them. Keep them occupied and just divide and conquer button. You know, identity politics button, you know, and then just create these crises, polarize people, play on these fundamental fears. And then, yes, people are in control of these things, but these buttons are so primal these motivations are so primal that when you trigger them, people are so much in that bubble of perception that it's hard for people to step outside of that bubble and see actually what's going on. 
Did you ever see that movie Wag the Dog? I think with Dustin Hoffman, where it's an old some, one. It's an old one. Yeah, political yeah, movie. Also, yeah, it's worth rewatching. And there's some sort of there was some sort of political scandal that came up, and you know, an election was coming up, and they were trying to figure out how do we how do we how do we get out of this and win a re-election. And so they hire. I think they hired Dustin Hoffman. And he basically orchestrates a fake war, fake war, fake country, fake all this. He hires a movie director to direct this, all these types of things, and. Or Dustin Hoffman, now I'm thinking, he may have been the movie director. But anyways, they put this whole thing out on play and people buy it. They eat it up. The polls are tracking the polls, all those types of stuff. And and the person goes on and gets through. And it's such a... Manufacturing public consent. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really... It's really... And the other one that came to mind, as you were saying, there's a movie called Cabin in the Woods. Mm. where the the people get trapped in this cabin. And then there's literally these guys behind the screens pushing buttons, pheromones, werewolf fear you know what kind of monsters they're going to send out to elicit what kind of emotional response they're trying to get out of their their people and for the people who are betting and watching them around the world yeah and there's a lot of coincidence theorists but you can actually look up the things that are sometimes mentioned i think the term new world order was coined by hdg wells i think and it's one of the two wells but it could be hg wells that actually was a simulation of an alien attack done in the 20s or 30s with a radio play and that they actually checked out the reactions of people. How would they actually react to an alien attack? And they used authorities like generals because you don't know what's going on. Or a general is telling what's going on. He has the authority, which we see right now with virologists and doctors. Like, I don't know, but this person who has authority knows, so he must be right. But then the selection of who has the right to speak, the authority, of course, is like selected by certain people. But that's a lot of things that can motivate people to make a decision. It's my decision. But then when you take a look, what did you base it on? Okay, my authority is in this person, in this medium, in this figure. And who decided that that's an authority? Oh, those people set that person there, trusted institution there. And when you then do some background research about certain institutions, then you find, oh, there's a lot of people there who set up the conditions, who sponsored it, you know, behind the screens. Yeah, and it's, sometimes it's even more primal than that. We're basing it off of emotion. How does it make me feel to believe this? And how does it make me feel to be accepted or rejected by this person? If you're somebody who I don't necessarily agree with and you've kind of pissed me off at some of the projunction in life, and all of a sudden you have an opposing view of me, I'm going to double and triple down that because I mm-hmm. have a vendetta that I can't wait to make you fucking wrong. And the way to do that is to go all in on this group or vice versa too. Like if you're somebody who I really want to get in your favor and close to, and you can bet I'm a double and triple down on that belief system because it's going to feel good to be get that level of reinforcement. It's going to feel good to get that acceptance. And I think that, again, going back to your statement about tre- humans being creatures of comfort, we are seeking comfort. We're trying to avoid discomfort. We do not like being uncomfortable. And one of the most uncomfortable places we'll ever arrive at is the place where we're looking at and challenging our own belief systems, where we have to acknowledge that we're misaligned with our values or we don't even know what our values are. You know, we, we call teenagers when they start to act up as teenage rebellion. Well, really, probably what it is, is it's one of those times where they're really starting to become conscious of who they are and what they believe. And maybe they find that they believe something different than their parents or their values are slightly different. And they're trying to separate and figure out their own, but parents fear them separating from that, right? And so they'll call that teenage rebellion versus teenage exploration. Yeah, we can't deal with negative emotions anymore. We can't deal with that. We can't deal with being offended and being triggered. This person says something I doesn't like. So then suddenly when something happens that is, again, un- not under their control or they don't like it, it's almost like 
living in a glass house, like one brick can destroy yeah. the house completely, right? But they're safe in the glass house. So we, we're teaching people to not develop that resilience to say like, that's uncomfortable things in society. Yes, we can try to prevent it, but in a way you also want to become resilient to learn how to deal with it. But we hide them in the dark. And then there's like little shadows that appear like, oh, mommy, you know, like the biggest giant ever is appearing. Yeah, and if you and if you even are willing to be brave enough to explore and try to develop that resilience, we've been teaching that there's massive consequences that could be out there because everybody's walking around with their cell phone waiting to catch you at your worst moment mm-hmm. and waiting for you to say something that might be slightly out of context or maybe it's, yeah. it doesn't come off quite. And then they'll take that sound bite, put it up there and run a loop on it and put you put you in this category of label. You're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. And then we start evaluating people based off of an emotionally charged moment, a moment of their humanity where they're going through and talking and doing whatever they're doing. So for somebody who's wanting to go into this other space and explore, when we talk about safety, it's funny that we phrase safety, right, as a thing, because we've made it the most unsafe for people who are willing to explore their own belief systems that are different from the herd or what we, we advocate as being the norm. Yeah, the biggest comfort is learning how to deal with discomfort. Yes, people are comfort-seeking creatures, but the same people who are comfort-seeking creatures are putting on the mainstream media every day, which is blasting horrible news and discomfort to people their eyes and their ears. (laughs) You want more comfort? Shut up the mainstream media. (laughs) Yeah, I was at the gym the other day, and in the 20 minutes I kept looking at the glancing up, I saw probably 10 headlines of the 10 headlines. There was one that was somewhat framed positively. All the other nine were all framed very negatively. And not only that, but there was one about golf. And it was it was talking about, you know, so here you have the golfers walking down the course. It's sunny, right? It seems like this is about as harmless as it can get. But the headline was like something like arch rivals, controversy, Mars, upcoming thing. And, you know, some sort of thing like that, like just drama elicitation with it. And these guys are walking in their little khaki pants and their little khaki shirts and walking around and it looks sunny out. And there's nobody out there looking like they're fighting, but the media makes it seem like that. And so when those are the headlines going through, like you imagine what we would all feel like emotionally if the headlines were, gosh, new water well installed in Africa, right? Uh, new, New upstart project that helps homelessness get back on their feet launched in Western Europe. That hero who's like catching plastic in the seas and making an invention with nets to save plastic in the seas. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same, it's the same reflection that I have about what's going on. You know, the thing that starts with a C, which has a mortality rate of 0.15%, mostly 80 plus year old with underlying illnesses, and every attention resource has to be focused on that. Can you imagine everything we did right now with the celebrities, with the campaigns, with X makes you free? Could you imagine a campaign? Exercise makes you free. Meditation makes you free. Healthy yeah. eating makes you free. Connecting with people makes you free. Finding your purpose makes you free. All the celebrities, like, find your purpose. Be healthy. Oh, not you're going to get a burger when you're going to do the Xavine thing. It's like, no, you're going to get an extra group lesson if you're going to exercise and be more healthy. Can you imagine what we could do? Yeah, if we, we replace the, the mortality ticker with, like, a pounds lost ticker. Right. Instead of it being about how scary it is and how many people are dying, what if it was a it was something about how many people are fo- proactively focusing on their health and really realizing that their health is their one thing that they have dominion over in so many ways, and that the majority of us in this world, especially in first world countries, we've been very proactively 
doing massive disservices to our health with what we put in our body and how we choose to move or not move our bodies. And wouldn't it be incredible if we had that for a change here? Here's in the United States, it's something like 70% of the population is overweight or obese. You think about it, like over to be classified as over obese in the United States, I think it's 30 pounds or so overweight. And the number one death cause in the world, right? Yeah, number one. And so if you think about that 30 pounds and essentially if 30 to 40 pounds, whatever it is, if, if that was the focus, right? If we had it being collective weight loss or something like that, if a person were to lose one pound a week, just one pound a week, that's a 3,500 calorie deficit that you can combine from exercising, moving more, eating a little bit less, we could have wiped out obesity mm-hmm. in one year, wiped out obesity, which then as a byproduct, you know, heart disease, all those other things that go hand in hand with it. We could be the healthiest we've ever been in human history right now, I think in so many ways, but we're not, we're, we're probably more unhealthy. We're using more prescription medications. We are, I think I heard something the other day that the average adult in America like something like 60% are going to be on some sort of antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication over 65%. Yeah, in Belgium, it's about one out of 10, I think, that are antidepressants. So we see a lot of things when you look at people in the past that people were more satisfying and life was more stable. So we see it in the burnouts, we see it in depression, in medication use, in how long relationships last, that we are going like downhill, even though the technological means, the comfort means are going up. So clearly... There is something not working here, despite the fact that we have so much resources to make the world, make humanity a better place, helping people find their purpose, connect with each other, and stop polarizing. But when you look at the, the communication, the polarization, the identity politics card, it's, it's worse in the 60s sometimes. And I'm thinking, yes, we can still improve things, but the fact that it's so over-exaggerated, like... Do you think there's purposely an agenda behind it by certain people? Or do you think it's more the sign of the times and a kind of end of a certain era that now is boiling up? I think, I think that fear and mediocrity are the two biggest businesses in the world. And I think right now, business is booming. And I think that's tragic. Because I think that doesn't have to be that way. I think that we need to look no further for evidence than how we... The, the media that we consume, you know, especially the, the news. The news is, is just one beacon of fear and mediocrity. And every now and then there's one feel-good story thrown in there to try to balance things out. And I think that that's, that's problematic. When we're putting each other, we're, we're constantly creating narratives to pin each other against one another. You're making a decision for your health. You're making a decision against somebody else's health. You know, it's black versus white, Republican versus Democrat. Whatever it is, we have so many of them now. And then it's a challenge because I think that the people who are, who have the biggest megaphones are smart. I think they probably know what they're doing. And I, I just, I wish that, I think of that Spider-Man quote often with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I just wish that people took responsibility for how, what a privilege it is to have that power and that influence and really considered the and what their influence is doing and what kind of impact they could be making with people. I'm, I'm more and more convinced of that people are being put or allowed to be in certain positions because they got certain support or they have certain character traits. 
because when you see Amazon, it should have been like bankrupt a lot of times, but then it's like keep on pumping stuff into it. So it becomes so big that it can't fail. Uber, the same thing. They've been having loss for so many years till they survived. If you read Tesla, the story like suddenly was almost bankrupt and then he still got some support. So I, this is just a hypothesis. They got some support for people like, we're going to cover you. We're going to make you so big, you can't fail. You're going to be super rich, et cetera. can do everything you want, but you have to fulfill a certain agenda. Because for me, when I look at the top 20 richest people in the world, they have so much money, but they're not using it to provide permanent change and make the world a better place. A lot of times they want to enhance their power. Just recently, I'm always way ahead with my podcast. You see, I was talking about Elon Musk. You can worshiping as a great visionary or whatever, but it's a guy with no morals. Don't listen to what they say. Look at what he does with Neuralink and all the companies. And first he said like, hey, buy Bitcoin, decentralize, fight the power, be in the rebel, right? And what did he did now? Oh yeah, no, I don't allow Bitcoin anymore. And now it's crap and our love relationship has ended. Bam, it plummeted completely. So 80 people have tremendous power and B, I don't see a lot of so-called philanthropists actually doing real philanthropy. Yeah, I think a lot of the real philanthropists are the ones that are, aren't in the spotlight. You know, they're, they're more behind the scenes. And I think like to that point about the Bitcoin, I was going to ask you, did you get involved in GameStop in January? It, it gets to this point where it's really about ready to go. And then all of a sudden, there's this blackout among all the trading systems. And it's, yeah, we it's, rig the game, but if you rig the game, that's not okay. We can only yeah, rig yeah, the yeah, game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, and then it goes from 400 and something a share to... 300 to 200 something in a matter of minutes because people couldn't get on there. And now they're supposedly having an investigation, but you know how long those things take. And it's even been happening this last few weeks where they'll halt trading because AMC started to take off or GameStop started to take off. And it, supposedly some of the things are not as bad as it was before, but there was a really big one in January where you had all these people who were, who are really, they thought they found this, and they did, they found people who were, who were trying to you know, game the system. They figured out a way to, win the game and and kind of robin hood it take you know get from the rich mm -hmm. and give to the poor and then it got shut down they they had played they had made a new game and also they said nope no 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 you're not gonna let that happen with everything that's going on this crazy year why can't people believe that they're being lied to i think because we I think that we have been made it so comfortable for ourselves to lie to ourselves on a daily basis. So I'll give you an the easiest example. When, you know, how many times do you make an agreement with a friend and you say to that friend, Hey, we'll meet up at 11 AM. Mm -hmm. And then one of you is there at 11.05 or 11.09. Well, the agreement was 11 a.m. So the lie was I wasn't going to be there at 11 a.m. I was going to get there at 11 or 11 or 9. Now, we can all get a one-off, but it's a normal thing, right? So when we have made it so incredibly comfortable to lie to ourselves, how can we ever hold anybody else to a higher standard? And so I think the expectation is, you know, it's funny. People will talk about trust, especially in relationships. Well, I can never trust again. I can never trust again. Mm -hmm. Human survival is predicated on trust. When we get in a car, we're trusting that the other driver is going to follow the rules of the road, not swerve over and kill us. When we jump on a plane, we don't know the pilot, but we're trusting that that pilot is going to fly the plane and going to get us at point A to point B. Well, we're mistrusting people, but we're trusting the science. Yeah, but then we're going to go and we're, we're, we're 
And so we're going to trust, but then we're going to act like that we're not going to trust. You know, it's a very interesting dichotomy, this game we play. We extend full trust, trust with our very lives to complete strangers. But then we often won't trust our own self with ourself, or we won't trust our most vulnerable parts with the people that we're claiming we're yeah, close you have to. The, you have the fundamental attribution error, you know, when I'm late, you know, it's not my fault because I'm a good person. And when somebody else is late, like, what the fuck this asshole is we doing? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, totally exactly. his character, exactly. you know? Yeah, exactly. But for me, the crazy thing, just as part of the thing that you did with learning how to deal with uh, that and loss and questioning your life is like questioning the fundamental narrative story that is guiding your life and going under the underlying premises of it. Like what's the foundation of my life with everything that's going on right now, which has a lot of impact on people, their life. I'm always curious that people are not willing to look at the foundation of their life or the foundation of that story, because it has such a huge impact on life. This is always crazy to me. I was always willing to see the truth and then see what it's like, but a lot of people don't even want to investigate that or implore further, even though it has an impact, you can ignore it, but it still has an impact on your life. This is strange to me. We were, we've been taught since we were first born that we need to believe and trust in authority, right? Respect your elders, mind your parents, listen to your teachers and believe what your doctor says and so on and so forth. We're taught that you're supposed to grow up, get good grades, get a job, you're going to work a job, get the house, get the so on and so forth, right? Everything is about process and trust. And in that, there's always going to be some sort of listening and adhering to authority. That's just how it is. It's just the way things are. And in that, the assumption is made that if we do those things, then we will have a successful life. And successful life for most of us means we're going to end up at some place where we're happy. So who are we to question it, right? Why would we question something that, again, we've formed a habit around listening to and inviting to over the course of our entire life? And especially when we're young, there's consequences, right? You think of the times when you challenged your parents to challenge teachers at yeah. school. Because and I tell you, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember there was one time that I had a teacher in high school. And she was doing some stuff that was just blatantly not okay. From my perspective, blatantly not okay. And I was always such a shy, quiet kid. But I finally got to the point where I, I can't take this anymore. I have to say something. I got in trouble, had to stay after class, had to write an apology letter to her. All these types of things. Like, it was just, it was, it was bananas. Because I was challenging her authority. And it wasn't that I was challenging her authority. I just didn't agree with it. And there was no explanation offered to me as to why. It didn't make sense. You weren't challenging authority. You were standing up for your own authority. Yeah. And so <laughs> when we really think about that, like if we think about some of the stories we celebrate throughout history, fact or fiction, so many of those are about us looking at things outside the box. It's the hero. The real hero's journey is seeing how things have been and realizing that there's a fundamental flaw to how things have been and challenging and setting a new path for how things could become. And for so many of us, again, when we have so many systems in place for comfort, right? go home, Netflix, food, drugs, alcohol, sex, we have all of our needs being met by an app, literally a swipe away. It's going to get harder and harder, I think, for many ways for us to challenge it. And now we have more and more language that if you do challenge it, you're in this group and that group is this or that group is that. Yeah, and it's it's basically like don't ask, don't think, shut up, shit still. This kind of ancient Prussian school education system, which becomes kind of like a way of life, but it's even 
more dangerous right now because you can have the speech police and the thought police and the feelings police. And if you're going to post something, just an idea or start a conversation and it's not aligned with what they want, you get removed from the tribe. You get removed from your audience that you've built up for all those years because you're not a good boy, Jesse. You have to stay within the ideological propaganda and what we like. But just as you said, I was studying the rebels, the different thinkers. That, yeah. That's where the change comes from. That's where the innovation comes from. You know, Phil, I think one of the most important lessons in, in history, and it's one that's really talked about, was there was a, the Christmas Eve ceasefire in World War I. And you had, the, you had the front, you had the Allies on one side, and you had the, the Germans on the other side. And they're in trenches in no man's land. Sometimes, you know, it's the most God-forgiving place. It's cold, it's freezing. And I think it was the Germans first brought in like little Christmas trees and then little Tannenbaums. And then somebody on one side, I don't remember which, started singing Christmas carols. And there were some Germans that prior to the war had worked in England. And so they were Mm. fairly speaking English. And so then they started singing, translating back and forth. And then one person says, well, somebody join me in the front. And they go down, they lay down their weapons. And pretty soon you have these guys that were calling each other all sorts of names, literally looking at each other as monsters, wanting to kill each other. Because they were so afraid for their life, they're now after shaking hands, exchanging things, and and doing the sacred work of removing the dead. They're playing soccer together. They're showing each other photos. And what's really remarkable in that is, all of a sudden, I realized that I'm a German and you're you're an English soldier. Wait a minute, I'm not a monster. I'm not some radical. I'm not some evil thing. You're not all of a sudden God's soldier or whatever it is. I'm somebody who's fighting for my kid, and they're. Mm you know, safety, mm-hmm. just the same as you're somebody fighting for your kid and their safety. Now it's presented as these extreme ideologies, but the core motivation for soldiers on each side is that. And so then what ends up happening is after that ends next day, they don't want to kill each other anymore. Well, I now so I'm not killing this, this monster. I'm killing Phil. And I kind of liked yeah. him. We played soccer together. Yeah. He helped me carry my best friend who got killed out of there. So what happens? They don't want to shoot each other. So the generals, the people behind the scenes completely removed from it say, hey, you need to get out there and kill each other. They still want to do it. So then they say, okay, well, hey, Phil, I'm gonna, I have to fire, but I'm going to fire high so you go low. And then now your side is going to same thing. Jesse, well, I'm going to fire, but I'm going to fire low so you get high. And then it eventually comes where the, ger- the generals behind the scenes have to threaten court marshals, saying, if you don't kill him, you're going to get killed. And that's bananas, right? Because yeah. it was a moment at our most... You think about war is probably the most emotional extreme moment of humanity where we are literally, we have to create some sort of narrative in our head and belief system so strong that I will take your life without hesitation. And in the coldest, most miserable moments of humanity, people are able to get up and find the humanness in each other, be able to see that you're fighting for the exact same thing as I am, the safety of your family, the people that you love and care about. Wow, you're not a monster, you're a father. Well, that's the same thing that I'm reeling right now with everything with the Salvines, and it's sometimes difficult to have the empathy towards them, but they're doing it because they think it's the good choice. They want to save lives. They think it's the good thing to do, you know, and then that's the story that's guiding them. And they want to play this divide and conquer game that we fight amongst each other, you know, and then the people behind the screen, they can just take advantage of it. But yeah, I know they're doing it because of a good reason. I know I'm doing it because of a good reason, because I want to have a livable society and also think of the future that future generations and children may grow up in. Their empathy is sometimes a bit less because they, 
they have been fed that mainstream media perspective that I'm like, you know, denier, which is using that World War II language. But in the way, the same thing with racism, the same thing that I realized, like I had some conflicts with the way of life of strictly Muslim immigrants in Belgium, let's say. But I've been reflecting about this like the last weeks. And I feel this has also been like orchestrated 9-11, then starting Afghanistan, then in Iraq, the illegal war, then in Syria, suddenly like the conflict arises and there's like a whole bunch of refugees coming to Europe, which have different values. This will always create a conflict. You know, I'm judging them by my values. They judge them by their own values, some things that I really like about the brotherhood. But they're also just being played and being used. And then we're blaming it on the Muslims or blaming on these people. But then in other way, I could also feel like, hey, brother, I understand you, man. You've been used by the system to fight each other, to blame each other. And then we keep on focusing on this low level. But you know what? Those people who set these things in motion, these are fucking assholes. We should get together and fight this thing, you know? Yeah. Until we learn to see the humanity in our neighbors, we're going to always struggle to come together to take on the wizard behind the curtain. You know, the Wizard of Oz ends up finding out that's just a person behind orchestrating the whole thing. The challenge is, is that we're not even getting on the yellow brick road because we're still finding fault in one another. And, and we have to learn to see our neighbors as somebody asked me the other day, they said, Jesse, what do you think would be the fastest way to improve the world and make it better? It's an alien invasion, no doubt. I said, alien invasion? I said, yeah, absolutely. Because what happens when an alien invasion is all of a sudden, it, it, it chunks us up more global, right? We have the luxury right now of seeing each other as Republican, Democrat, Muslim, Christian, all those types of things. We Left, have all these different right, layers. Yeah. Yeah. There, if it's aliens, now it's humans versus aliens. It's Earth versus outsiders. Now we're all on the same team all of a sudden. So there's collaboration and there's 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 collaboration and there's a there's a common goal, a common cause. We don't have that luxury right now. Unfortunately, the aliens aren't invading, at least that we know of. And so what we have the opportunity to is really like it's learning to look at our our neighbors and see the humanity in them. If we're seeing the more labels we affix to our neighbor, the more blind we become, I think, in my opinion. It doesn't mean we have to like them. It just means we have the opportunity to respect them. Well, I think they're already like planning an alien invasion to then again have that eternal war, as what they talk about with Oceania and the other parts of the world in 1984. You can quote me on this. They will simulate a cyber attack and tell me, hey, citizens of the world, give us your digital data because good old government is going to protect you from those cyber attacks. So now we want to track and trace what you do online. For your benefit, of course. Climate change, of course. There's only one narrative that we hear, 100% anti-pollution, etc. But it's much more complicated than they pretend. But again, they use this eternal war, crisis to crisis to crisis, cyber attack crisis. There's this refugee crisis, Cold War crisis, Vietnam crisis, you know, crisis to crisis to crisis. So oftentimes, even if it's like a good cause, it's being used to keep people occupied, keep them busy, keep them polarized. So yes, an alien invasion could unite us, but it could also be like used like, yeah, give up your freedoms. You have to have to lock down and this is happening, you know, in this whole kind of, if you're going to use movies as analogies, it's Truman Show, pushing the buttons. And then, you know, you have this whole social experiment, how I'm sometimes feeling like after a year and a half, you know, sometimes I feel like suddenly you're going to walk out like, and then I'm like, Jesse, I knew it, man. Oh my God, you did the thing with it. I knew that it was, I, I knew you guys, man. I know you. Oh my God, you did this for a year. Gee, like, 
I expect this to happen like every day because it's so surreal, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm holding out hope for the Independence Day <laughs> where it's the speech and everybody comes together. But I get it, yeah. And I feel like it could go either way. Like I, I often still think sometimes that what was it? What was the downfall of the great civilizations in history? It was probably because they couldn't be grateful for what they had, and they felt they had the need to keep they had to keep expanding and conquering. And I think that that's the piece right now for us is it's we're at a really unique time in human history where we do have the opportunity to have survival needs met mm -hmm. and we have the opportunity to really, I think one of the opportunities of humanity is have that consciousness ele elevation, be able to do that. But we're, we get still so stuck in our ways. We can't look from our fellow animals. We in Africa or a watering hole, you'll see all the animals come to the watering hole together. And they're not trying to, the lions aren't trying to kill the gazelle there. It's like a peace place, right? We all come there because it's, there's no threat. We don't need to hunt. We don't need to kill or slaughter one another here. But for us, sometimes to share resources, can't do that. You're, you're my naughty neighbor that really upset me the other day. And sometimes, uh, sometimes what I think is the solution is to do the exact opposite what globalists want and what they have been pushing the last uh, decades, which some things maybe had to be done. But I think go more local, celebrate your origins, celebrate your ethnicity, which has nothing to do with white national, but be proud of your culture. This yeah. is the diversity in earth. I like to go to different places, see their culture celebrating. It's not like, oh, they are anti my culture. They're celebrating their culture. Focus more on polarity in relationships because they want to make everything subjective, you know, and masculinity, femininity doesn't matter anymore. All these themes that we see right now, globalized ordering on Amazon, more local celebrate your ethnicity, be more a bit more honoring the polarity in the relationship so it creates more stability. Do the exact opposite of the move that a lot of people in power are focusing on and build and create those first that society within yourself, little one man, one woman society. But I think parallel societies, I think on the short term, it's like needed that we honor again those things that we have lost and that actually are celebrating diversity, ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, more local, more nature, more connection, and integrating that technology instead of chasing that comfort, chasing that speed of technology and innovation that is taken away from our fundamental satisfaction and fulfillment, I feel. Yeah, and we can replace the labeling of those different cultures and expressions with, instead of labeling, replace it with curiosity. Wow, you do that? Yeah. Why do you do that? You know, instead of it making it about labeling it because they're so strange and different, making getting excited about it's, you know, when you go to some place you've never been to before, you go to a new restaurant you've never been to before, you're so excited to try the menu because it looks so different. It looks so interesting. You don't just go there and order the same thing you'd order at the other restaurant. You try things different. Be excited. Yeah. Replace labeling with curiosity. Yeah. And I think sometimes cliches or have also a reason because in general, sometimes they're a bit more true, which doesn't mean there's no exception, but et cetera. So you could go to these black communities like, oh my God, there's so much more in their body, man. They're like, oh, I'm at the jazz, better improvising. Oh, they're so smart with their words, you know? And that made those black people look white people. Oh man, they're so structured, you know? They're so consistent, you know, like these. Yeah, we all yeah. can learn from each other. And I don't judge everyone like they are all like this. But there are some things we can learn from certain communities, certain ethnicities, certain culture, which I actually appreciate. Yeah, like it's, it's just, it's such a great thing to be able to celebrate differences, acknowledge differences, acknowledge how we're different. It doesn't mean that it's, it's a bad thing to do. I was, I was hanging out with a couple of friends the other day and both my friends are gay. One of them is black 
And he says to me, he says something about, makes some joke about rednecks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was saying, yeah, where I grew up. I saw, and he was looked at me because we were making a joke about where I grew up. And then I go, and because and, it there was a lot of rednecks up where I grew up. And he, he looks at me like he, he was sorry he offended me. I'm like, dude, don't be sorry. It is. There's a lot of them up there. It's true. One of my best friends who still lives up there, he'd be the first one to tell you, yeah, I am one. I'm so proud of it too. And it's it's just, it's sad that, friends come together and they're expressing and they're, and they're, they're playing and they're yeah. connecting and you have to be worried about. But it's intention, as, right? It's context and intention, which you yeah. often only know in an individual context, you know? And when you take that away, man, that sometimes we make jokes like, and sometimes as they talk like locker room talk with Trump, everybody have had this locker room talk, you know, like, and then just, you know, like fooling, etc. We would never voice this publicly, but it just but playing with it, you know? Yeah, I, it's like I, I look at my my friends that I hang out with, and it's just it's it's like a hodgepodge of humanity, which makes it so fun. And they all like we all joke with each other and everything else, and it's and it it makes it fun. It makes it really really fun, and it just deepens our relationships. And I think that's the piece is like we're so quick to not want to offend other people, but what we really need to be asking is we need to be asking the question about why am I choosing to be offended by this? You know, why I, am I allowing this to affect me? I did hip hop for 16 years and I was one of the top battle MCs and freestylers. And I always, I kind of liked that assertive competitive thing in, in men sometimes, especially the more older men than the generation right now, because I had to be quick with it. <laughs> they challenged mm. me, you know, mm. to then come back and rebuttal, you know, and it kept me ch- sharp, you know, like, okay, how can I come back? You know, et cetera. It also helped me create more control within myself and handle those circumstances. So I actually liked a bit those challenges thrown at me made me more resilient. I find that I feel like people who, who become successful at whatever they do, they'll often say that they'll say that I appreciated the challenges because they made me more resilient versus most of us. I think when we're struggling, we hate the challenges because we feel like it's just one more obstacle. It's one more hard thing we have to deal with. Yeah. But when I started my hero's journey, I realized that I was leaving the familiar tribe and I was going through the woods and it would be a bit of a lonely place in the shadows but if i would commit it to sharpening my sword learning how to survive that would be some great adventures i could go on so i didn't expect it to be settled the beginning period was the most difficult the people asked me like how did you get to where you are like one day at a time man committing to the journey and then putting that gift in myself you know hero's journey you try to find the thing outside of yourself and then learning the skills learning about yourself you realize like in the alchemist it was within you yeah it's always been within us. Like we're, we're always the key. We're always the blessing and we're always the curse. It's always us. Is there anything that you liked about the King Arthur myth above other myths? Yeah. You fulfill what it is for me is it's, it's the idea of the round table. It's the idea in the time of, you know, medieval times and tyranny and, and corruption and all those types of things that there was a place called Camelot where there was a round table and the round table was chosen with intention that no one person was more or less than another and that everyone was equal even to the king. And I think that that is, and that there was an open door an invitation to sit at the round table that even, even someone built not born, not of nobility, but just by being a good person, by conducting themselves right, by, by living in alignment with values that the kingdom held dear could earn a seat at the round table. And I think that's such an amazing metaphor for right now is God, what would it be like if we, if we all had a round table in our home and we invited everyone to sit at it, nobody was judged. Nobody was put on a head of the table or valued more or less important than the other. And that anyone, no matter where they were born, no matter what their 
what was it in the in the Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger? They said you can you can create your own stars or something like that. It's it's that man. I think that that is it. It speaks so beautifully to what's possible for humanity if we create those opportunities for one another. And we start, but it starts first with us being willing to set a space of welcoming to allow that to happen versus being closed off. We can never have a roundtable experience if we start with a rectangle. Yeah, and it's also something that is about service, about being noble, committing to a duty. And I think that's very powerful in your life when you can say like, okay, what's my duty to myself? What's my duty to the world? How can I serve? Not just having conformity and slavery, but like how can I commit to a greater cause? Yeah, and that's... All of us have the opportunity to create, to contribute to a cause greater than ourselves. And I think one of the reasons we will often wrestle and fight with one another is because we're not aligned with the cause greater to ourselves. Again, society's made it too easy not to be. There's too many options on Netflix. We're, we're too easily programmed to coming out of the factory system that education is in many ways. So we're not taught to seek cause, just the same as I wasn't taught to how to deal with grief and heal from a loss. I was taught to figure out what the symbolism was on the green light in the great Gatsby and to sing some sort of fancy song to remember quadratic equations, you know, like stuff that I never use now. Well, I use the great Gatsby one a lot just to kind of go on a tangent about <laughs> education, but the actual skills that would really I think it's one of the worst books written ever. It's so difficult to read. I asked once, like, what is one of the crappiest books ever that is, I, I, maybe I hurt your feelings here, bro. Like, but yeah. I think it's one of the most overrated books ever. That was probably what started the downfall with that one teacher I told you about earlier, because I remember on the essay and there was a question about it. And I wrote, why can't it just be green because of the way the fog comes in and the light's reflecting on it? <laughs> Why, why does there have to be some sort of deeper meaning in it? Why can't it just literally be a, a trick of the eye because of the, the lighting? Like rosebuds, right? In Citizen yeah. Kane. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, this is so, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to break hearts of great Catsby fans, but it just seemed to me, this was so stupid because there's so much other stuff that we could really. And you know what? We've been talking a lot about movies and I also saw, and maybe you also have some experience about it. These archetypical themes, these epic movies, I find that the storylines in terms of depth in, depth, in terms of characters, in terms of archetypical stories, they've been perverted a lot the last 15 years. There's not a lot of, besides like The Matrix, a lot of mem- Truman Show, etc. like memorable movies where relate with the characters that's like really standing out. I feel that it's changed a lot also in these movies that have an impact on how we view society, you know, through series, through movies. Have you seen a difference in archetypical meaning or storylines or depths of characters in the movies the last 10 years, 15 years? Yeah, I think that if, if we do if we do Marvel versus DC, <laughs> I think that Marvel has done a really good job of allowing us to really fall in love with characters and go to depth with them. And DC has given us kind of the cookie cutter scraps with the exception of the Dark Knight series. I think in the Dark Knight series, we really got to be invested in and Batman and go through the whole journey with him. But Batman aside, I think that there's been a massive miss and in so doing we get like this, it leaves us completely unsatisfied unfulfilled with Marvel. At least for me, I, I still cry every time that Captain America is worthy to wield Thor's hammer. And because it's so, it means so much to me because Captain America to me is like that, that superhero is so the most like you and I. He's, he's the mm-hmm. closest one that we could espouse to being. 
He doesn't have the fancy armor. He's not a God. He's not all these types of things. And he, he, he does, he always does the right thing, even when it seems like it's a hard and difficult thing to do that he's willing to stand up against this, or he's, he's willing to stand alone against Thanos, even though it means imminent death to him. So the fact that he could be worthy of the power of Thor, I think that's a really powerful thing. I always, I always cry still when I see him say Avengers assemble, but more so because, because to me that represents him always believing and always doing the right thing that his friends all came at the time that he needed them the most to support him in fighting. And I think that's something that we miss is that if we were to just do the right thing and the right thing doesn't mean it's the easy thing. It doesn't mean it's the it's the it's the neat thing or the right choice. Or I, I, I love these uniting scenes, man. Like I think yeah. also in the second Lord of the Rings, you know, like he's been asking the help of someone and oh he's not God, coming, so you know, and then <laughs> yeah, like coming so at the last time. Like those moments are completely so good. epic, man. Yeah, so good. Yeah, it, it looks up. Look at the light of the fifth day, and then they go out there <laughs> and they charge out, and there's Gandalf, and then oh, the king. No, he's not alone. Rohirrim, and they yeah. charge out. Oh. <laughs> Goosebumps every time. It's still so good. But you know, that's it. Is I think I think that that's that's the the real metaphor almost there. It's like we all have that hope. Yeah, we have something bigger here, right? We may may have our differences, but we have something bigger at stake here. So let's fight for that. And we hold that hope that we could come together. Like I think we we see that that could be a possibility for it and for humanity that we could come together if we could put aside there's something bigger than us and. I don't think we're that far away from it, but we have to be willing to switch off what we're looking at externally and tune into more of what's going on in here. Yeah, and that's sometimes facing that or the death of who you think you are in a symbolic way, because also like yeah. in movies when some people, you know, throw themselves before the final big blast of an enemy and they catch the bullet or sacrifice themselves, etc., because they sacrifice themselves to something bigger than themselves which is a kind of ego death. But I think that is a very worthy way to die, let's say, when it's not just about you, it's like a cause that's bigger than yourself. Yeah, it's, that's what Matrix really is, right? Is Neo had to give up what he knew to be able to go and pursue something bigger than himself. And I think that's where you had two of the movies start to go downhill after the first one. They had some <laughs> cool fight scenes, but they got worse and worse and worse because they didn't just run with like that simple the metaphor they had to try to keep making it bigger than what it really was versus just expanding on what already it already was, which is now now it's going into this piece and we'll, there's so much, there's so much richness that could have been. Yeah. Also Neo is new and Neo is one. So in a way he's the ultimate individual, but he's also the one that connects everyone, you know? So it's like in a way, the most individualized level, but also someone who's willing to sacrifice themselves to the whole and connecting everyone with each other. So it's a very, important archetypical image are you gonna watch the fourth one when it comes out this year i haven't isn't it coming the fourth one coming yeah yeah it's coming out it'll be out in i think the winter or in the around christmas time thanksgiving in november december this year it's definitely an interesting movie to see especially the first one with all the things that are going on right now i can't believe it's it's like 20 years ago or 21 years ago it still seems like brand new i think it's almost i think that was done in the 90s the mid 90s yeah I think so. I think it was yeah, like mid, early, mid 90s. So maybe like 20, 25 years even. If people want to find out everything that you do, where can they find all the neo, the new stuff about you and your individual talents? Yeah. Uh, social media, Jesse, Jesse Brizendine. I'm all over Jesse Brizendine. You can just find me on there. I'm on there. 
Last question. If somebody would want to ask him questions while pondering over their own deaths, loss, loss of a friend, what would be a place that you would suggest for them to start or some questions to ask? It's a great question. The most important question I think we can ask ourselves is how would this person I've lost or persons I've lost want me to live? And what would they want me to do in this moment? How would they want me to spend this next moment? And what I'll often do, Phil, is I'll often ask that person directly, Gabe, you know, how would you want me to spend this moment? Dad, what would you want me to do right now? Because after loss and there's so much confusion, there's such emotion, and it's so easy for us to lie to ourselves when we're so emotionally vulnerable. I think there's an ultimate truth that emerges when we ask guidance from those we've lost that kind of cuts through some of the the BS that we use to fuel, you know, loss is hard enough as it is, but we will often fuel our grief with guilt. Yeah. We will often fuel our sadness with shame. And it makes it that much harder to navigate and move through. But if we allow those who we've lost to guide us, it can help us navigate through one of the most difficult times of our life with as much grace and ease as possible. And after that loss period, do you just give yourself enough time to be with the feelings? Because that can be this tendency to distract yourself from all the uncomfortable emotions. Yeah. Now what I do is when I, when I, you saw me just sit up and kind of lean back. Yeah. I've gotten that comfortable with losing people because I've lost so many people. And I, I say that jokingly because I actually do have rules now for myself. So when I find out I've lost someone, I, I cancel out anything that's not essential. And I give myself at least a week just to feel cry, be angry, all those types of things. I, you know, I will often kind of zone out with Netflix and head to a point of toleration, but just really, you know, have a little bit more of the comfort food. I normally wouldn't eat I, no alcohol during that time. No, no alcohol at all. Anything when I'm in a really emotionally charged state, I have a real no alcohol, but I I'll eat peanut butter and jelly and they go waffles, those kinds of things. And I just give myself permission to feel, especially during the through those intense bouts. It's so important that we feel through it, not to try to mask and stuff it down, but to really, when you need to cry, cry so hard until it, it hurts. And then there's going to be a moment where you come up for air, we take a breath. And I refer to those as the in-between moments. So the moments that are in between the bouts of grief and sadness, guilt and shame, anger and grief. It's a moment where that emotion is kind of physically processed through and you're feeling something different than you were before. And those are the moments that's so important to start to be intentional with it. Asking those who you've lost for guidance. How would you want me to spend this next moment? What would you want me to do? And sometimes it's something simple as just smiling. Go stand in front of the mirror and smile. But the fact that you can smile, it's starting to pave a way forward for you. It's starting to lay a breadcrumb for you to follow, follow towards a happy life. And it, and it, I think what's really important is when we lose someone, it's not the end, it's a new chapter and the new chapter. Again, we're not comparing the new chapter doesn't have to be better than the previous. The previous chapter could have been amazing. And the next chapter can be amazing too. And that amazing next chapter doesn't diminish how amazing the previous chapter was. It just means that you're really honoring what that chapter was and you're, you, you love it, you care about it, and you're so committed to honoring it. And you want the legacy of that chapter to be a legacy of amazingness as opposed to a legacy of sadness. And one thing that also, you know, stimulated that way, and I don't know if you had the same thought, is sometimes when I have difficulties with people, like that you can have that feeling like, I wish I, if only I, I should have actually, et cetera. And when I have certain things that I wish 
you know, that I want to say to someone, you know, at a certain point, say it to the person because yeah. you never know how long they will live or how long they will be there. And when there's some things that you always want to say, like, Hey man, I want to thank you for this, or you've been so helpful here, or I just want to get this off my chest. Like these conversations are important. So sometimes I reflect about this, like these important people in my life, what's the message I want them to take away that if they're gone, I'm glad that I said it to them. Dude, you know, going full circle, we talked early on about, we look at these things two to 300 times a day. Imagine if you were intentional with this instead of picking up to look at Netflix, Facebook, whatever it is, you got on here and you sent 200, I love you messages every day to different people. You sent 200 messages of appreciation to people. I did a gratitude challenge once where I said like, I'm going to for 30 days send a message to people who had a big impact on my life and I'm going to tell them how much it meant to me. That's awesome. Thanks for meaning a lot to the world and starting your hero journey and inspiring others to do the same, man. It's been an honor to have had you on the podcast, Jesse. Hey, Phil, likewise, man. Thanks for creating this space and having me on. I appreciate you. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a comment. And if you're a coach or consultant and you want to scale your online business or maximize your productivity, check out the show notes to find out more about Philip and his coaching programs. Rent. Over.